turn to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Our text is taken from the first two verses. We read the entire psalm. We hear the inspired, infallible word of our God. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me, for I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the health of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites from the hill Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night his song shall be with me and my prayer unto the God of my life. I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me, while they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. As I stated, we take as our text the first two verses of the chapter. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, though there is no author that's mentioned here with regard to this psalm, the author is understood quite universally to be David. The style and the tone, the words are very similar to that of David, especially to that of Psalm 63, which is identified as a psalm of David. The psalm is intended for the sons of Korah and for them to sing. This is for the generations, if you recall, of one who was swallowed up in God's judgment. An interesting aside, God's judgment, you remember, came upon Korah, Dathan, and Abiram as God opened up the earth and sent fire from heaven and swallowed them and their families. However, with regard to Korah, we read the interesting exception in Numbers 26, verse 11, explicitly stated, notwithstanding, the children of Korah died not. The children of Korah are later identified as David's singers, so that Korah's children evidently were believers and were spared by God as evidence that God does not judge the children for the sins of the fathers, for sins that they never committed, 
But the judgment that fathers bring upon their children is a judgment that comes in the way of the children continuing in those sins. The psalmist desires the face of God. That comes out in verse 11 as he expresses that earnest desire. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. David here is being forced to flee, likely from Saul. And as he's running away from Saul, the result of being away from God's house and away from the saints is that David becomes lethargic. He becomes depressed. And he begins to question his circumstance and his situation. And that comes out especially in this psalm. He begins to question who he is. He questions the love of God. And so that in this psalm we have David talking to himself. And in a sense encouraging himself according to the inspiration of God. Hope thou in God. For I will yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Literally. God is the salvation of my countenance. He's the one who's able to lift me. He's the one alone who's able to give me lasting joy. And that's the struggle of the psalmist here. Joy that lasts. Earthly joy is fleeting. Earthly joy escapes us. But to know the presence of the Almighty God, to know His face and His favor toward me in love, is that which is the earnest desire of the child of God. As we prepare for the Lord's table, we ask ourselves, where is it that I'm looking for happiness and joy? Is this my desire? Am I panting after the water brooks? Is my soul thirsting after the living God? Am I desirous for God's presence? Or is God's presence something that is fearful and something I don't want anything to do with because I know that I'm not walking in a manner that's right with him? Where am I looking for joy? Am I looking to relationships? If only I had a husband, if only I had a wife, if only I had children, if only I could have my dad back or my mom back. Are we looking to drugs? Alcohol to be joyful, to be happy? Am I looking to some great purchase? If only I had a different home, or if I only had a better automobile, or if only we could purchase this, then, then I would know joy, peace, contentment, happiness. What is it that gives lasting joy? Jehovah God comes to us this evening and gives us the reminder that it's only through the living God, that we can find lasting joy. And we examine ourselves as to whether we are seeking that joy in God. Am I panting after the living God? Panting after God, we take as our theme, noting the meaning, the cause of it, and the satisfaction that God works. As the heart panteth, so panteth my soul. We're familiar with hunting deer. There are times when hunters sit in a stand and they wait for a deer to come to them. There are other times when hunters get together and they gang up and they begin 
to look for a deer. And they see one, perhaps, and then they start chasing it. And perhaps they chase it with pickups across sections and through fields until finally they can get it cornered, and then they're able finally to take that which was the object of their desire. This passage is conveying a deer, a heart, a female deer, a doe, being chased. Now, whether she's being chased by hunters or being chased by wild animals, she's been chased out of her familiar territory. She's been chased into a location now where she finds herself in a new, strange place, and she doesn't know where to find refreshing water. Desperate is her need. She's tired. She's worn out. And now she finds herself shaking and quivering in weakness in this unfamiliar territory. And what is her great need? This heart, this dough, needs water. Needs a stream of water for two reasons. Number one, to jump into it in order to cool down her body temperature. But number two, to drink because she is thirsty, consumed with thirst. Now, the idea here is not just that she's very, very thirsty. The idea is desperate. It's to the point where I need water or I'm going to die. David makes a comparison to one's soul. The word soul here is put in the feminine in order to parallel the word heart. Demonstrating here that parallel as the heart, as the deer is panting, so my soul is panting. And David here is conveying his situation as dire as that deer. David has been fleeing for his life. He's been chased out of all of his familiar territory. And David is worn out. He's tired. He's in desperate need for refreshment. But David is not talking here in a physical sense. He's talking spiritually of the dire situation that he finds himself in. David has been chased away from the tabernacle. He's been not able to worship with God's people as his desire is. And David's soul desperately needs the presence of Jehovah God. Without God's presence, all is in vain. David needs more than merely the presence of God, however. We know that God's everywhere present. God sees everything that takes place. We can try to hide things from our parents, our spouse. We can't hide it from God. He sees everything that's going on in your life and in my life. God is with David. We don't doubt that God is with David. So what is the issue here? David desires the living God as a God who's showing his face of favor toward him. David cannot live apart from the blessed assurance that God is with him in love. And as he's been fleeing for his life and being chased out of all of his familiar territories, David's concern is, where is God? Has God forsaken me? Is God casting me off? Have I done something to make myself unworthy of God's presence? What is the face of God toward me? Now, we realize how important it is for us to read faces, and we can get pretty good at that. 
we see someone come in the room and immediately from their face, we're able to have an idea of whether they've had a good day, whether things are going rough for them. We're able to get an idea of what their sense and thought is toward us. That's the idea here of the psalmist. He's desperate to know God's face and to know, is God's face toward him in love? Now, you children know that God doesn't have a face. God is a spirit. And so that's the sense that we're speaking of here. Not in the sense of actually seeing God's face, but what that represents. And the idea that God's face represents God's favor, God's love, God's care upon an individual. Does God care about the fact that I'm running for my life? Does God care about all the struggles, all the challenges, all the situations that he's put in my life? Does God care about the fact that I'm experiencing intense pain and suffering and that my situation is so dire that I can't keep going? That's the struggle here of the psalmist. I'm filled with anxiety about the life now that I'm required to pursue. And I'm struggling to keep myself encouraged in the midst of this. Now, David had been anointed. God had assured him that he would be king. And yet now, in the midst of all of this uncertainty, the devil begins to sow doubts and fears. And that's where we have in this psalm, David having to continually remind himself of who he is, of who God is, of the promises that God has given. But as he's experiencing this trial and this hardship, he's inclined to say, God must be dealing with me in angry, anger. God must have cast me off. God is looking at me in hatred and wrath. Or is it love? Now, often when we're young, in our youth, we don't think much about God's face and God's favor. We don't think much about our desire to see that God's face or God's favor is toward us for good. Those who are not spiritually sensitive don't even care about that. The fact there's a concern about that is indication of the spiritual character of the psalmist. This says something about this man. There's a spiritual life that God's implanted within him. And that spiritual life is such that he's concerned about God. And he's concerned about his walk with God. He's concerned about how God is treating him and how God is looking toward him. The psalm doesn't, psalmist doesn't write this as one who's spiritually dead, who doesn't care. He desires to please God. He wants to glorify God. And that is the spirit that is behind this struggle. He's alive. And out of that new life that God has implanted within him, he wants to know the attitude of God toward him in his current situation. Beloved, this is the cry that rises from the heart of one who's been saved, one who's being drawn closer to God, and one who desires to see God's hand of love in the providences of his or her life. To see that God's hand is truly for good. To know and to believe that God is leading and guiding me in a way that works together for my salvation. And that God is not casting me off in wrath, but that this is an expression also of his tender compassion and love. The child of God at times cries out. At times the child of God struggles with those doubts and those fears and those temptations. But no man has ever struggled like one. You remember Jesus as he hung on the cross. What was the cry 
that uttered from his lips, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here was the one who was the object of God's everlasting love, living in the bosom of God himself, and now experiencing during that three hours of darkness the horror of having been forsaken by the one whom he loved. The face, the favor of the father had been toward the son in anger and in wrath, it seemed. And he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then in that desperate condition, what was his cry? I thirst. In the agony, the pain, the suffering, he was dry. He was parched. Jesus had endured the excruciating pain of hell. He was paying the price of the sins of all those whom the Father had given him. And as he came close to that important work, Jesus was saying, to know the light of God's favor, to know the countenance of Jehovah God and his love, that's what I need. And that's what the psalmist is struggling here with, to know the assurance that God is looking upon me in love, that God will not cast me off, that this suffering doesn't mean that God hates me and that he's dealing with me in wrath. So easy it is for us to fall into a type of spiritual lethargy. We go through life and our souls desperately need God's grace and they need that spiritual food. They need to be assured of God's love and God's care and God's promises. But the thrills that we get from the world, the entertainment about us, that which we get from our earthly relationships, from sports activities, from books, from business, from pursuing various matters and experiencing success, begins to rule our lives. And pretty soon we're finding joy and happiness like the world. The heart of religion is true faith in Jesus Christ. And if we're seeking and seek, trying to find satisfaction and hope and joy in the things of this earth, there's no satisfaction. There's no peace for the child of God. The regenerated heart longs, hungers after, pants after the living God who has given life. And that life is that which requires the face and the favor of Jehovah God. Now what is it that causes us to pant after God as the heart? First of all, the fact of our sinfulness. The deer here had been pushed to the point of exhaustion. David had been pushed to the point of despair. And what was it especially? Sin and the awareness of his sin and his sinfulness. God has opened our eyes and God has enabled us to see our sin. And seeing our sin, we increasingly are struck with the fact that our sins are real. Our sins stand over against God. And our sins enter into and disrupt our relationship with the living God. And as we grow in our understanding of our sin. And as we pray with meaning, we can pray without meaning sometime, and God pricks us and makes us see our own sin, our own sinfulness. 
And we pray with meaning. We begin to identify those sins. We realize increasingly the depravity of our own nature. We see more desperate our condition as we stand before the living God. And as we understand those sins in light of God's goodness and God's mercy and God's grace, we become more and more ashamed. How is it that I could think those thoughts? How is it that I could say those things when God has shown such compassion, such love, such care for me? I commit those sins against the most high majesty and the glory of Jehovah God. And as we understand and as we realize increasingly the horror of that sin and think of the love that God has loved us with and the wonder of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we're driven to our knees again. Why did Jesus die for me? Why me? Why would he choose me? And we're humbled to the dust as there's no reason other than God's good pleasure and the marvelous character and nature of God's love. And increasingly we realize it's not just a matter of the things that I do that I ought not do or the things that I don't do that I should. It's a matter of my nature. It's a matter of my goals, my ambitions, my thoughts. And the result is that we begin to understand more fully the concept of sin, the concept of sinfulness. And we realize that old man and the horror of that old man and the way in which he disrupts our relationship to God and how quickly and easily the devil tempts us and makes it so that we're not walking with God as we ought. We're not panting after him like we should. Instead, we're pursuing the things of this life as ends in themselves. God wakes us. And God brings us to see that I'm a sinner not only, but I'm sinful. And God brings us to understand the way in which I got this way. That I can identify with Adam. And I can't rise up in judgment over against Adam and Eve. But I realize that I've been there, I also would have done the same thing. Separating myself, cutting myself off from the living God and pursuing the way of the lie. Instead of seeking God, and his face and favor and repentance, so often I try to find other ways to try to find satisfaction. I lie. I try to cover up my sin. I try to find ways that I can excuse the things that I'm doing. Try to compare myself to others perhaps and say, but look, I'm doing better than they are. I'm walking in a more holy manner than they We're not panting after the living God. We're not pursuing God's grace, God's mercy. We're not confessing our sin as we ought. Imagine if you're stranded on a raft in the ocean and you're consumed with thirst. And so the temptation is to reach your hand over the side of the raft and grab a handful of salt water and drink it. But instead of it giving relief, it's only going to cause the situation to become all the more desperate. We try to find relief in all the wrong places. Sin drives us to understand and to see our great need for God. But secondly, this panting after God, which involves a desire for the countenance, the face of God, rises out of this awareness. I deserve everlasting death in hell. My right alone is to hell. Sometimes in pride I can live as though 
I deserve better than what I'm experiencing in my life. I begin to think that it's not fair what I'm experiencing. And then I'm humble as I realize I don't deserve anything other than everlasting damnation at the hand of Jehovah God. And so that, beloved, increasingly, when things happen to us in life, we realize two things. First of all, I'm never going to receive what I deserve. I deserve a face of the Almighty God looking at me in anger and wrath and casting me off forever and throwing me into hell. But because of Jesus and what he did in my place, because he declared, it is finished, I'm assured, I will never be cast off. But secondly, what I do get as a child of God is something I don't deserve. It's all of grace. It's a wonder of God's goodness and God's mercy. And as God leads us through life, God gives us increasingly to understand the wonder of his goodness and his mercy. Now, there are times when we start to question, can I even be a child of God? How is it possible that I can be a child of God? And there are times when that struggle becomes real for the child of God. The Canons of Dort beautifully address, in a pastoral way, some of those struggles. If you turn with me to page 60 in the back of our Psalter, we have the first head in the Canons of Dort, Article 16, expressing the struggle at times that a child of God even can experience. Those who do not yet experience a lively faith in Christ, an assured confidence of soul, peace of conscience, an earnest endeavor after filial obedience and glorying in God through Christ, efficaciously wrought in them, and do nevertheless persist in the use of the means which God hath appointed for working these graces in us, ought not to be alarmed at the mention of reprobation, nor to rank themselves among the reprobate, but diligently to persevere in the use of means, and with ardent desires, devoutly and humbly, to wait for a season of richer grace. Much less cause have they to be terrified by the doctrine of reprobation, who though they seriously desire to be turned to God, to please him only, and to be delivered from the body of death, cannot yet reach that measure of holiness and faith to which they aspire. Since a merciful God has promised that he will not quench the smoking flax, nor break the bruised reed. But this doctrine is justly terrible to those who, regardless of God and of the Savior Jesus Christ, have wholly given themselves up to the cares of the world and the pleasures of the flesh, so long as they are not seriously converted to God. The genuine concern of the child of God is, am I desperate in my understanding of my need for God and for His grace? And do I understand in the face of my sins, how desperate my need is for forgiveness and for mercy? And am I living in a way that my sinfulness and my awareness that I deserve everlasting damnation in hell drives me to my knees to seek after the living God, to know my desperate condition and the fact that he alone is my help, my strength, and my salvation. The psalmist says, therefore will I remember thee, in verse 6. 
That's a striking statement. Therefore will I remember thee. The fact that the child of God here recalls experiences in the past of sweet communion with God makes him desired all the more. And as I stated, in essence, that's what the psalmist is doing in this psalm. He's struggling, but he's also talking to himself and reminding himself of God's goodness and God's mercy. And here we find him reminding himself of previous times in his life when he experienced the riches of God's goodness, when he drank deeply of the waters that were living, those waters of life. The fact that the child of God experienced that sweet communion with God and knew the face and favor of God in the past makes him all the more desperate in his longing for it going forward. The deer enjoyed walking in those refreshing and cooling streams and now when there's none available, the lack of it is so much more the greater. Remembering what she had in the past and now missing it even more desperately. There have been times in our lives when God used trials, afflictions, circumstances to draw us to himself. I've often talked with individuals going through such trials who said, there was a spiritual high that God gave me that I could not compare to anything that I had ever experienced. Walking in that situation, I wasn't praying for strength for the day. I was praying for strength for the minute, for the moment. And as I was in that circumstance, and I was so desperately aware of my complete dependence upon the living God, God was holding me. He was caring for me. He gave me a peace that I couldn't even express to others. Beloved, that's what the psalmist here is talking about. God has been with me through times of trial and affliction. And through those times, he was walking with me. He was upholding me. He gave me to know a peace, a comfort. He gave me to know his face and his favor and the assurance that I was not being cast off. He loved me. He was embracing me in love, and he gave me to know that nothing could separate me from the wonder of that love. The beautiful refrain of Romans 8. There's nothing more delightful. There's nothing to which we can compare that. We can't compare it to anything this world has to offer. God is on my side. He's holding my hand, and he's leading and guiding me by his counsel. And he makes everything work together for my good, as Romans 8 verse 28 points out. And he's doing this for my profit. God works that faith and he brings us to the mountaintops of faith at times. But then the devil goes to work on us and pretty soon we find ourselves back in the valley. And that's where David here finds himself. He was on the mountaintops at times, but then he's also in the midst of the valley. But he's able to look back and say, I will remember thee. I remember God. I remember his goodness and his mercy. And whether I knew it at the time, he was working all things together for good. And now I can look back even at times and I can see with greater clarity how his hand was working things for good. Though I would never have desired to go through what was required of me, I can see that it was necessary. And I can even confess it was for my good. Recently, I had a gentleman who is facing fatal cancer in our congregation, and he knows that his days are limited. 
But about a year ago, he was diagnosed, and he made this comment to me shortly after that. He said, I'm ashamed to say this. I served as the elder in the church, but I didn't know joy. I really didn't know what joy in Jesus Christ was all about. Until now, God has led me through this trial, and now I experience joy. And I know the wonder of God's goodness and God's mercy like I've never experienced it before. That's the desire and the idea here. A thirst that rises up from the experiences that I've had before and God's goodness and God's mercy. That God will not quench the smoking flax. He will not cast off the bruised reed as Isaiah 43, 42 verse 3 points out. He won't turn his back on his hurting child. I don't taste that favor now. I don't feel it at this point, the psalmist is saying, but I need to press on, knowing that God's face and God's favor and God's goodness are upon me. And that's where the canons makes reference to making use of the means that God has ordained. I keep praying. I stay in the word. I keep coming to church. And I trust that God in his goodness and God in his mercy will restore me in that spirit of joy and hope. When we're tried and when we're tempted to ask, has God forgotten me? The child of God does not stop. The child of God presses on. I want to know God more fully. The unbeliever, when he experiences hardship, flees, wants nothing to do with God. The child of God rushes into the arms of his heavenly father and desires to taste God's goodness and to know God's mercy. And the way of joy, the way of happiness is found in the experience of that wonder. Knowing my sin, knowing what I deserve, and knowing the greatness of God's goodness and God's mercy. And that's the satisfaction that the psalmist expresses here. When shall I come and appear before God? The child of God wants to stand before the living God, desires to know the face of God's favor and God's goodness. How is it the child of God is restored regarding God's face? Now we have to make a distinction here between the Old Testament and the New. We can identify that difference. In the Old Testament, they seemed to be far away from the house of God. And that was David's often concern. He found himself far away from God's house, far away from the priest, from the tabernacle, and in that way, separated from the living God. God made himself known through the tabernacle and the temple later. And God had a place then where he dwelt. It was in Shiloh, and then it was in Jerusalem. There was an altar of burnt offering there. There was the table of showbread, the altar of incense. And in that holy of holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. That's where God lived. God dwelt there with his people. And the people would come. Burdened with sin, and the priest would carry out that which was required. He would bring the sacrifices. They would offer up the sacrifices. The priest would lay their hands on some. That would be the scapegoat. And through that process, the priest then would assure them of God's favor. And what would the priest assure them of? He would assure them that God's face was upon them for good, that God had cast their sins away, and that God would receive them in love and mercy. And so what was it that the priest would say? 
The same blessing that we hear often. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious upon, unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. That God's face shine upon you. That God give you peace and that God comfort you in the midst of the circumstances of your life. They would hear that blessing. They'd be reminded of the wonder of God's face upon them and they'd be directed to look by faith to the sacrifice of the lamb on their behalf. By nature, God's face is in a scowl, in wrath, but by grace, God's face is upon them in love. In those Old Testament times, that was experienced in the tabernacle and one had to go there. David was far away when he wrote this. He desired that experience and that closeness with God. And he longed for that day when he'd be able to return to the tabernacle and again experience that wonder. So for David and for the saints in the Old Testament, often that was what was necessary to go back to the tabernacle, to hear the blessing of the priest and to experience again the blessed assurance of God's presence and God's favor. Beloved, the wonder of the cross and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus into heaven and the pouring out of his spirit has changed that experience for the child of God. The one who cried like no one had cried before, I thirst, is the one who provides the wonder of living water for his children. What happened when he cried out? When he experienced the father's forsaking? God gave him to know his own favor. On Calvary there, what happened after Jesus experienced that horror of the wrath of God against all our sins, the experience of hell? God turned the lights back on. The sun again shone. God expressed again his favor. We experience that at times. There's a desperate storm. It's dark. Everything is filled with fear and terror. And then all of a sudden, the storm is over. Light penetrates again the clouds, and even sometimes a rainbow appears. God shows his favor. God reminds us that all is well. He is with us. He's watching over us. Through the darkness and through the struggle with sin, God gives his children to know the victory that is in Jesus Christ. And God gives us to know by faith that his face, his countenance, is not upon us in wrath. It's not upon us in anger. It's a face of love. It's a face of favor. He forgives me. He shows mercy to me. He will never forsake or cast me off. Though I sin against him every single day, and though I'm so ungrateful, he holds me in his everlasting arms, and he assures me that nothing, nothing can separate me from the enjoyment of that love. He has embraced me into a relationship from which I cannot fall and in which he preserves and keeps me to all eternity, holding me in his everlasting arms. Jesus, after the sun came back out, was able to commend his soul with joy and with blessedness and boldness to the hand of his father. He died without fear. He knew that he would be embraced by his father and that he would be brought into his bosom. And beloved, because of that work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, 
We also face death without fear. And we know that our thirst will be quenched and God will grant unto us everything that we stand in need of. The things of this earth, they're like that salt water while on the raft in the ocean. They can provide some temporary relief at times, but it's going to just make us more and more thirsty. There's no lasting relief to be found. The devil tries to lure us constantly into the things of this world and the pursuit of the things here below. But Jehovah God, by a wonder of his grace, teaches us that we need to look to Christ, that we have to direct our eye of faith to him alone, and that our thirsting and our hungering is to be directed to the wonder of his grace. He is the one alone who's able to preserve and to keep us. Jehovah is my strength. And I need to learn that. Constantly, I need to learn patience. I need to learn contentment as I walk down life's pathway, as I'm constantly tempted to lean on my own strength, to put my stock in the things here below. But through the trials and through the afflictions and through the sorrows and through the joys, God's favor and God's goodness becomes all the more evident. When shall I come and appear before God? I'm not afraid to stand in the presence of God because I'm not alone. I belong to my faithful Savior. And he represents me. He's the one who died on my behalf. And he's the one through whom I will enjoy the blessings of life everlasting. The psalmist says, who is the health of my countenance in verse 11. When we cry out to God, in our desperate need, God's answer is, I'm with you. Isn't that the often repeated theme of the Bible? Fear not, for I am with you. Don't be afraid, I'm with you. And God is not just with us in terms of his presence being everywhere present. He's with us in Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit in our hearts. He's dwelling with us. He's upholding us. He's preserving us. He's keeping us. And the beauty of God's covenant love is that God says to you and to me, my love for you has nothing to do with anything of you. My love and my care for you and my continued preserving of you is all of grace. It's through the wonder of that work that I've performed from eternity and what Jesus did for you on the cross. And I will maintain my covenant. And I will preserve and I will keep you. Jesus thirsted so that you could drink deeply of the living water, the water of life. Beloved, it's with that spirit that we come to the table next Sunday, Lord willing. We come to the table knowing our desperate need for the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowing that life is experienced only through Jesus Christ. And knowing that that which alone will satisfy the desperate need of our soul is Jesus Christ and the wonder of his perfect work on our behalf. And so we eat that bread, we drink that wine, and we think of the wonder by which I have been united to Jesus Christ by a true and living faith. And I live out of him and I show forth his praise. And he's the one who by his spirit dwells within me. And that's why I will continue to pant after him. It's the wonder of his riches and his grace toward me. Beloved, may we prepare our hearts in this coming week and may we come 
thirsty, longing for that which alone satisfies. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us. Work in us repentance and sorrow as we look at our own lives. We see the desperate pride and we see the ways in which we trust in self and pursue the things here below. And work in us that spirit by which we might look to thee and know that thou alone art the one who can grant joy and blessedness and to know the wonder of thy favor, to know the peace of thy face of love upon us and the blessed assurance that with thine everlasting arms thou art preserving and keeping us now and to all eternity. May our lives in this week be characterized by thankfulness, by praise, by worship. Amen.